Welcome to Oh God, What Now, the politics podcast that will not be going wild swimming in that lovely local stream with the strange brown water and the shopping trolley in it. I'm Andrew Harrison. On today's show, we're putting on our waders and rubber gloves to welcome clean water campaigner Fergal Sharkey. Just what has gone wrong with water in Britain? How do we fix it? And did you know we used to be in a band? Plus, an exhausted and by-election battered Tory party has tried everything. Nothing works. So why not try more of the same? Tax cuts, benefit freezes and more culture war ammunition are on on the agenda. What is with the midlife crisis a year into Sunak's premiership? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Madonna and Abba are two of the biggest live events of the moment. Keith Richards says a Rolling Stones hologram show is inevitable. Should we free music from the death grip of nostalgia? Before we meet the panel, a little teaser for you. We will shortly be announcing our Christmas live show in London, and Patreon followers will be finding out about it first. They'll get first dibs on tickets and a discount too. So if you're not supporting Oh God What Now on Patreon, now is the time to start. Follow the link in the show notes or just Google Patreon Oh God What Now. Right then, let's meet the panel. Matt Green is a comedian getting ready for his first stand-up tour with a show at the West End Comedy Club on October the 30th. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Not bad. Glad to have you here. So did you enjoy the lonely wandering ghost of Nadine Dorries writing in the Daily Mail about her encounters with big tech when she was culture secretary and saying that in Silicon Valley there are big dials that they use to control what people see and read and the tech bros use it to kind of calibrate it and make everybody more liberal? I mean, it's a good job they're big dials, because if they were small ones. dials, then we just might lose them, wouldn't we? I know, yeah. Terrifying. I mean, I, I do feel like few things can make me feel sorry for people in big tech, but the idea of having to explain the internet to Nadine Doris is one of them. It's like Father Ted with the cow and Father Dougal. You know, yeah. the, the dial isn't really... A, the scene, a lot of people referenced on Twitter that scene in the IT crowd where they give Jen a box with a little light on it and say that that's the internet. Yes. And it did feel very much like that situation with them. I mean, she's also got that similar energy to someone complaining that the adverts on websites are all showing like porn links. <laughs> Not realising that that's because they've been on private browsing and that's yes. that's that's why they're, they're there. Um, the thing is, I, I just wish that big tech was making people more liberal. It feels like big tech yeah. is massively pushing people to the right wing these days. We've got Elon Musk taking over Twitter and turning it into a sort of right wing hellscape. We've got um, YouTube, which if you spend even a few hours on YouTube and just click sort of random links on the next thing that it's suggesting to you, it'll almost certainly send you into a right wing rabbit hole. So yeah, I, I feel like people, um, yeah, if it was going left wing, I'd be I'd be very happy about that. They showed her the big doll, but really it's the little doll that yep. you're going to be worried about. Rachel Conliffe is Associate Political Editor at the New Statesman. Hi, Rachel. Hello. So the Israel-Hamas war continues to generate far too many horrific stories for us to cover. But I wanted to ask you about one thing in particular. Keir Starmer's troubles with Muslim Labour MPs and councillors. About 150 councillors have written to him asking for him to call for a ceasefire. He's been criticised for saying Israel had the right to cut off water and energy to Gaza. Later said that only that the country had a right to self-defence. How big a problem is this mini revolt for Starmer? So it's certainly a problem. I would say it's one of the most difficult challenges he's had to face as leader because of the makeup of the Labour Party, Labour MPs and Labour voters. And obviously the recent history of the Labour Party that he is trying to counterbalance when it comes to specifically this issue and whether the Jewish community and the Muslim community in this country feel safe. Um, in terms of his his position at the moment, 
there is anger and certainly there is that anger is going to continue to grow with the council the councillors standing down and calls for a, for a ceasefire within the party there have been some rumors that some shadow cabinet members might even quit over it from what i've heard those are kind of overblown you're not really going to see resignations over this but certainly anger labor's current position or the position that they're moving towards which is very similar to the position of Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives, is they're not going to call for a ceasefire, because that's a very loaded word, but they might call for a humanitarian pause to allow the hostages to be returned and aid to reach citizens in Gaza. The difference between a ceasefire and a humanitarian pause, I think there's a there's a whole book that could be written about oh. the language that you use to discuss that. But I think there is a slight softening in the Starmer position now compared to a couple of weeks ago when I think he felt he had to take a very, very hard line to differentiate himself from his predecessor. Right. Okay. Um, our guest this week is a lifelong fly fisherman, an environmental campaigner, an ex-music industry executive, and you might not know this, he used to be in the undertones, Fergal Shaggy, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, sir. Um, so we're going to be talking about your water campaigning in great detail in a bit, but I didn't realise that as part of uh, your, your journey in this world, you actually contracted virus disease yourself and were 24 hours from leaving this mortal coil. That's oh, like God, mega you, serious. You really have been doing your homework, what, haven't you? What happened? Um, well, listen, it's a word of caution to everybody. Clearly, I made a lifestyle choice that I spend a lot of time in, near, on top of, next to rivers. And by default, you're therefore likely to run into the urine from a pregnant rat, whence from you contract Viles disease. Um, More importantly, when I was uh, six, seven months after almost leaving this mortal coil, the last appointment with the consultant, he was telling me there was a couple of guys in intensive care had gone out for a few beers after work on a Friday night, had been drinking bottle beer out of bottles. Think about it. Creative beer in the basement of a pub in London. Really? Pregnant rat spraying all over the beer. Oh both of them in intensive care, Wells disease. I can assure you I have never, ever drunk beer out of a bloody bottle ever since <laughs> and I'm happy to stand at the bar and can be cantankerous and awkward and go I don't care if you've got no clean glasses I'll wait go and wash one I'll have my beer in a glass thank you very much Lord, how, how long ago was this when you, when you had uh, this 96, 97 um, the short version if anybody wants to run away screaming now would be a good time to do it uh, you get what kind of looks like the flu but isn't mm. you then get what looks like the jaundice but isn't and then you die um, I didn't bother with the jaundice bit maybe me I was just always cantankerous I just went from it looks like the flu to oh my god you're nearly dead quick we better try and save you but as the water is discovered I survived it. <laughs> Evidently, yes. Um, you started a campaign on water quality uh, when you became chairman of the Amwell Magna Fishery on the River Lee in London, which goes not far from my house. You know, what kind of awakens you to the terrible um, state of our waters? Yeah, I kind of get slightly unsettled when people use the word campaigner and stuff. Yeah. Um, I retired 10 years ago and I was really happy just minding my own business, just being a boring middle-aged bloke living in North London, going fly fishing. How dull could you possibly ever get that, you know what, I turned 65 this year, so I'm really happy in my dull, boring middle-aged contentment. And then I became chairman of the oldest fly fishing club in the country, My predecessor was explaining to me there had been a conversation going on for about 15 years with the Environment Agency in Thames Water about water levels in the river. I work in the music industry. It's like comedy and like the media. Mm. You've got deadlines. 
You've got this week's chart position to next week's chart position. You've got a week to go and deal with the problem, fix it and sort it out. So I'm kind of struggling with the idea. How do you sit around and have a conversation with somebody for 15 years about a problem and not fix it? So clearly I came at this from a very different perspective. We effectively... Not only was I on my way to the High Court, as I like to say, on behalf of the club, I was standing on the steps, leaning against the doorbell, banging furiously in the knocker, demanding entry at half past seven to take the Environment Agency to the High Court. That managed to resolve all of our bit. So I'm pleased to say that got fixed. And that stupidly, naively, foolishly, that experience as to why... 60 men and women who just want to go fishing had to take the environment agency to the high steps of the high court. What the hell else was going on? And mm. that just gave me an itch. And bloody stupidly, I scratched that itch. <laughs> well, we'll be talking more about scratching that itch a little bit later. So first up, congratulations to Rishi Sunak, who has been Prime Minister for 12 months today as we record, meaning he has completed 50% of his total time as Prime Minister. Well done, mate. You've broken the back of it. Not long to go now. The 1922 committee's rules state that traditionally a Prime Minister can't be challenged within their first year in office. So naturally, rumours are abounding that letters of no confidence will fly in unless Sunak promises to cut taxes and return to true Toryism, as defined by Lord David Frost and Liz Truss. It is traditional for political parties to wait until after an election defeat before they have their nervous breakdown. Are the Conservatives getting theirs in early? Rachel, um, the mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth by-elections were real punishment beatings for the Conservatives. But apart from the kind of traditional excuse-making, you know, there's no enthusiasm for Labour. Our voters just didn't turn out. The Conservatives seem determined not to hear what the electorate is saying. What lessons are they deciding to draw? Well, I think it's mostly the excuses, actually. Mm. There is a lot of... Uh, turnout was really low, so it doesn't count. Uh, it was people who were staying home and rather than switching to Labour, so it doesn't count. Uh, they're by-elections anyway, and governments always use by-elections, so it doesn't count. Those are all the, the lines that came out uh, the day afterwards. But I think privately, Conservative MPs are really worried about this because they had hoped in the last year that the polls were wrong and that the swings weren't quite as great as were anticipated. So... It's not that they were expecting to do really, really well in those by-elections. It's that the majorities in those by-elections were so high, 19,000 in Tamworth and nearly 25,000 in mid-beds, that the swing Labour needed was way more than you'd expect, even with all of those factors coming in. Now, what can they do to turn it around? The problem is they're kind of starting to realise that Probably not very much unless the economy magically turns around and they can hand out lots of tax cuts and lots of free money to everyone. There are some on the right who think they need to be more Tory and they're pointing out, and certainly Richard Tice, who's the leader of the Reform Party, Nigel Farage's UKIP successor party, pointing out that the majorities that Labour won in those by-elections were less than the votes that went to this right-wing reform party. And therefore, if the Conservatives were more right-wing, they could have got those votes and maybe won those seats, which sort of misses the point that they might have put off even more people on, on the other end, on the centrist, moderate, saner end. So, yeah, they're, they're in trouble and they're panicking. The Telegraph editorial, unsurprisingly, imploring Rishi Sunak to be bold, which is code for more tax cuts, <laughs> restrict the benefits bill, all that kind of thing. You know, this seems to be 
I mean, I get the second mention of Father Ted in in ten minutes. I'm reminded of the bit, you know, when the I haven't milk, seen Father Ted. I'm there's sorry. a bit where the milk flood is going too fast. Come on, man! You have just insulted the whole nation of the island of Ireland. There you go. One of the most genius bits of comedy have, in the 20th century. I have century. seen the bit with the cow. I've All seen right, that bit. You've seen that bit. Well, I'm going to send you the box set. There you go. for me. Well, there's another bit where there's a milk float running out of control and too fast, and they get the, the priests say a mass, and it makes no difference. And after trying lots of other things, one of the priests goes, "Is there?" Anything to be said for saying another mass. You know, just doing the same thing over and over again. This seems to be somewhere in the DNA of the Conservative Party. Just keep doing the same thing over and over again. You've gone very right wing. It hasn't worked. Go still further right wing. Yes, but what's the alternative to suddenly go to the centre, in which case you are going to be a less inspiring version of what Keir Starmer's already not that inspiring Labour Party is is offering? I think that uh, going parties when they're in trouble often look to their core base because you're going to look at the people who turn up and who are engaged rather than the people that you might want to win over. I was at both the Labour and Conservative Party conferences and the Conservative one felt like it was taking place in a different universe because there were all of these talks going on and audiences full of people. I was on a panel uh, and it was about, I, I was making the point, I, had, I was invited there to make the point that the Conservative offering over the last 13 years to young people wasn't great and therefore millennials and Gen Z weren't too pleased with them. And I got shouted down by people in the audience who went, I think that's absolutely outrageous. I think we've had a great offer to young people. I think you're just talking this country down, talking this party down. And I was like, guys, you asked me to be here. Look <laughs> at the polls. So I think that you you get a different sort of message when you're in that kind of echo chamber. But Rishi Sunak's pitch that he now is the change candidate, five prime ministers in 13 years into Conservative government, hasn't really gone down too well because you either change by offering something new and there isn't really any money to do that or by going even more extreme right wing and, and, and then you are exacerbating the problems that put you there in the first place. We're getting the first tremors of what they're going to be like in opposition and it doesn't look like it's going to be pretty. Is going mad in opposition just a law of politics? Because we kind of saw, you know, Labour did it after defeat in 1979 and 2010. They kind of retreated to the fundamentalist comfort zone. The Conservatives had three flavours of right wing candidates after 1997 before they settled on Cameron as kind of fake moderate. Is this just like law of gravity in politics. You lose and you go mad for a bit. I think it depends how badly you lose. Uh, and one of the things that I'm hearing is when we talk about who might succeed Rishi Sunak, who that person is depends on how badly they lose. And the bigger the loss is, the more chance there is for a candidate like Swella Bravman, sort of a more extreme candidate to come in. If it's not as bad as expected, they might go for someone more moderate like like Penny Morden. So it depends a little bit on what those results are. But yeah, I think soul searching takes some time. I think you probably need a, a number of elections to work out what went wrong because you have a big defeat and that defeat will justify or prove the political opinions of literally everyone. Everyone sees into that defeat. Oh, if you just listened to me, if you'd just been more this or more that or done less of that, then we would have won that. And sometimes it takes more than one election for you to be able to see a trend that's like, no, the voters really don't like this bit and now we're going to change. Matt, do you think there's a market for kind of tax cuts and flogging the benefit claimants uh, for a battered electorate that just wants <laughs> things to work again? You know, just like, can I get a hospital appointment? I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's a market in certain parts of the right wing press. I don't think that means there's a market in a large enough 
part of the electorate for it to be helpful. I don't think most people love paying tax. I don't think many people are jumping for joy when taxes go up. But I think the reality at the moment is that people know that public services are in trouble. They need a lot of funding. And the idea of a tax cut funded by cutting more public services, I just don't feel is very appealing. It, it feels to me like it's, there's no... It's no good getting a few quid back from the government if you know that you're going to end up spending that money on having to buy uh, private health care or repairing your car because there's potholes everywhere or, you know, having to pay for a taxi because the trains aren't running or, or, frankly, just paying more for stuff because tax cuts are inflationary. And we know that inflation is going up uh, or mm. has been going up a lot in the last year or two and isn't exactly going down as fast as they said it would. Mm. Um, it does seem that they're kind of heading in one direction while the rest of Britain, you know, the bit we call the electorate, is heading in the other direction. I mean, the British Social Attitude Survey just found that currently 19% of people agree that most people who get Social Security don't really deserve any help. And in 2005, it was 40%. So like half as many people agree with that quite reactionary position. And yet the Conservative government is heading in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's like Rachel said that... Um, they tend to go back to their base when things are in trouble. And to use a sort of music metaphor, which feels kind of topical, it feels like they're a band who've made like a really experimental album over the last few years that nobody has enjoyed and hasn't charted. So they're now going back to the old hits. But the problem is no one likes the old hits anymore. Mm. And they're sort of playing the old hits that they don't enjoy, you know? That, that was called prog rock. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Punk rock happened because of prog rock. Well, Bear that in mind. Is Keir Starmer punk rock? That's the question. Yeah, I don't know. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Keir Starmer, big fan of Orange. Shoes. He's, punk. He's kind of like vaguely in your, in your wheelhouse there. Nothing wrong with postcard records from Glasgow. Nothing wrong with postcard records at all. No. Um, this and the simple truth is, what you're actually looking at is attrition and just the Conservative from the Tory party in this government's run out of talent. Mm. We were talking just before you started recording about the wonderful Nadine. Yeah. I, I genuinely find it hard to grasp. There was a moment in time that Nadine Dorries was the Secretary of State for Department for Culture, Media and Sport. In plain English, you're now in charge of £115 billion worth of the British economy. The music industry, the media, film, fashion, design, games. You put Nadine in charge of £115 billion worth of business. Have you utterly lost your mind? What in God's name ever drove you into that decision? Well, the simple truth was you're just looking at your reserve team, seeing who's on the benches and there's nobody there. Mm. So the truth is... They ran out of talent and ability years ago. The simple truth is what interests me about those numbers and the drop in people concerned about benefit claimants, is that anything to do with the fact that over 2 million people now are apparently are facing destitution in this country? Um, there's an awful lot of people out there now using food banks and now know what it feels like not to have enough money on a Friday night to feed your kids and yeah. pay your gas bill. And is that why you've suddenly seen a whole reversal in the polls? The simple truth is this country's in pain. It needs relieved out of it. And the sooner this government calls a bloody election and we can get on with it, the better we'll all feel and the better we'll all be. Rachel, with all these kind of um, psychological meltdowns and travails and you know disastrous uh, by-election results, the idea of another leadership challenge in the Conservative Party seems preposterous. Preposterous things seem to happen all the time. <laughs> what are you hearing? What's the what's the likelihood? There are letters going in. 
but then there are always letters going in. It's important to remember that, like, at any time in of Conservative government, you probably have a handful of letters into the 1922 committee. People just like to make a point. Andrew Bridgen, who isn't a Conservative MP anymore, he had the whip uh, withdrawn for, for anti-vax sentiment. Uh, but he, I think, had put in publicly a, a letter of no confidence in basically every Conservative leader that he'd ever, he, he'd ever been an MP under. Um, but what I think is interesting is the discontent is coming from more than one faction. Mm. You've obviously got the the Trussites, I guess, the people who think that Liz Truss actually was right uh, <laughs> and uh, we should just should have given her more time and it was, you know, the woke establishment that scuppered her plans and they want uh, tax cuts now and they want sort of her pro-growth agenda. So they are very unhappy. The One Nation moderates are pretty unhappy. I think Rishi Sunak got a lot of pushback for his uh, backtracking, U-turning on measures for, for net zero. Everyone's upset about HS2, at least in the way that that, was, that, that, that that happened was sort of four days of speculation. And then we're going to scrap HS2, which we said we weren't going to do, but we are going to do it in order to invest all this money in a whole load of transport projects that have either already happened, don't exist, or in subsequent days, we decide we're actually not going to fund after all. Everyone thinks that that happened pretty disastrously. And that means that it's very difficult for Rishi Sunak to recover or to do anything that would give him a bounce in the polls because he's sort of paralysed by this agitation and this discontent on, on all fronts. And I spoke to one MP who's on the sort of, not quite the Liz Truss end of things, but certainly on the tax cuts end of things, who said, look, we gave him a chance. We were waiting for a plan to materialise. There hasn't been a plan. What are we meant to do? And I can actually sympathise with that. Can I ask a question about the letters to the 1922 committee? Are you going to ask if they're actual letters? Because I don't know. Well, yeah, it's 20, uh, Graham. 26 I, apparently, reportedly. <laughs> because it's it's a mixture of, yeah, is it his letter? Does it have to be on some sort of heading note paper? And also, like, how does it work? As in, how long does a letter last? So if you put it in today, does it last until you yeah. withdraw it the letter? It lasts until you withdraw it. Right. And okay. uh, that was, that. first of all, no one actually knows because the rules <laughs> of the 1922 committee are secret. Um, we, 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 don't, we don't have to have any information about the mechanisms by which future leaders of this country are, are chosen. So um, they, they set the rules <laughs> themselves. Uh, the only person at any one time who knows how many letters... Uh, are in is the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, uh, at the moment. Um, I think they can be written in crayon. I think they could <laughs> they could be emails. They could be, I don't know, does Jacob Rees-Mogg write his with a, with a fountain pen? Probably. The WhatsApps count um, these days? That's the question. See, I would say that WhatsApps probably don't count because could you be certain that they weren't WhatsApped in when drunk? And what you don't want <laughs> is to tip over the line. And there was this, uh, I remember that there was this... Uh, anxiety, I suppose, in the Boris Johnson chaos era, where people were putting letters in to kind of make a point, but there wasn't a concerted effort to have enough letters to, they weren't ready to have their leadership contest yet, they didn't have a successor candidate. And there was this worry, what if we go over by mistake? What if someone puts in a letter and no, now we've got to have a leadership vote and we don't know what to do, we're not ready for it. Very with nail. We triggered a leadership <laughs> contest by mistake. I mean, that is basically the, the story of the last couple of years, isn't it? Our 
Our guest Fergal Sharkey is probably the most prominent campaigner for water quality in post-war British history. I can't oh, think of any bigger than this. you. Come on. It's true. Shut up. The former undertone singer is now less well-known for Teenage Kicks and My Perfect Cousin and better known for talking about the sewage scandals on our coasts and rivers, collapsing specialist waterways like chalk streams. Big deal. And, yeah. of course, and, of course, the mess that is privatised water with its underinvestment, pollution, profiteering and total lack of accountability. Fergal, after 13 years of neglect and a de- at least a decade of privatisation beforehand, what is the scale of the tax in fixing our water? Are we in, like, Bazalgette territory where we're going to have to remake an entire system? Uh is the water industry in an absolute shambles? And Rachel, by the way, you can now run screaming from this room at any point at all. <laughs> uh, you're going to have to stay. I'm going to carefully tape you into the chair. Um, here's the thing. Uh, every single river in England is polluted. One of the biggest sources of that pollution is the water industry. Running in parallel to that, as we speak, London is now number nine on the global cities most likely to run out of drinking water. 25 million people in London and the southeast of England are now within 20 and a bit years of basically having water rationing imposed upon them. We're now on a list along with the likes of Cape Town, Jakarta, San Paulo, Mexico City. Now, you do have to step back and go, well, this was all privatised 34 years ago. There was a regulator in place. I assume somebody was in charge. Turns out maybe not quite as much as you think there was. The short version... For decades, there's been a complete lack of political oversight, a regulatory regime where the legislation's all there and the framework's all there, but the regulators themselves were simply not up to the job. That dual mechanism creates a massive vacuum and the water companies gamed the system to their advantage. Mm. Short version, they've made off a £72 billion worth of our money. Uh, Water companies are now about £60 billion in debt. Every river in the country's polluted, and London's about to run out of drinking water. Bargain. Apart from that, everything's Bargain. great. <laughs> so, I mean, I would never have thought that drinking water and basic levels of sanitary kind of uh, standards in, in in rivers and streams will become a mainstream political issue in this country. It's, you know, it's like when I was growing up, Are it you was blaming like, me. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> but when I was growing up, it was like, well, don't drink the water in France. You might get a funny, funny tummy. Um, well, over here, it's always going to be great. The idea that it's gone so bad so quickly. Yeah, but for me, it's remarkable. just a, a litmus test for the state of the rest of the nation is in because you can take the discussion that... Yeah, I may have played some minor role in exposing what the hell's been bubbling with the water industry now for 30 years, pardon the pun. But by the way, does that alter and does that lack of neglect and deprivation and collapse, do you then simply apply that to education and schools and the NHS, society as a whole, the whole immigrant system and the hundreds of thousands of people just trying to get an application processed, mm. housing lists, people can't get housed. And the fact that Joseph Rountree's to be believed, there's a million children in this country today facing destitution. How in God's name as a member of the G7 did we ever get to this point that a million children in this country are facing severe, deprived poverty and living that will impact the rest of their lives? A plague of locusts in all of our houses. Going back to water, I mean, you you are, by your own admission, an unlikely campaigner, but what surprised you most when you talk to people about this? Because it is now a central issue in a way that we would never have imagined it would be. Um, Well, it's very simple. We've all been cheated. We've all been had. Mm. We got played. And we've all, particularly at that point, we put our trust and faith in this system called democracy. Government, on our behalf, issue 
state-granted monopolies to supply water to 15 million people. Clearly, there's an opportunity there and a, a belief that some companies may abuse that dominant position. And that is why you hope the government acting in our interests have put a fervent, proactive, robust system of regulation in place that will safeguard the consumer and the environment from any kind of misbehaviour by the water companies. So we simply believed in the system. Turned out we'd been cheated. The system failed to protect us, failed to protect the environment, and the water companies have taken our money and run off with it and scarp it off into the horizon. And by the way, we are talking Canadian government, Chinese government, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Queensland, Australia government. They've got our cash. Yeah. It's not coming back. So... When water companies are challenged on their terrible record on sewage and their terrible record on, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the big issue was leaks. But when they when they're challenged on their their failures, yeah. they tend to talk about the uh, vast and uh, you know unattainable levels of investment that are required, and also the vast uh, spans of time that are required to put this put this right. From your point of view, from your insider knowledge. A, are they bullshitting us? And B, what kind of time scale are we looking at to actually to rebuild uh, our capacity? Let me let me put it this way, Ryan. If you're talking about leaks, if your name's Thames Water, you leak 25% of all of the water you abstract out of the environment every day, and you've been doing that basically on and off for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it's a lie. Right. Uh, the average water company, 20%. Uh, I could sit here and go, well, here's the curious thing about the sewage system. The regulator, in my opinion in an attempt to cover their own corporate rear end, sent two letters to the water companies. One reminding the water companies that under the original 1991 legislation, they have a statutory obligation to build, operate, and maintain sewage systems capable of effectively dealing with the contents of those sewers. That's the business you're in. That's what the law says. That's what you bought into. When you bought this company, we presume you understood what you were doing. The second letter goes, oh, and by the way, we've given you all the money you ever needed to actually go and meet that legal obligation and do your job, something the water companies have to certify annually to the regulator that they've got the money and they've got the funding to go and build and operate and maintain sewage systems capable of effectively dealing with the sewers. So that begs a question. You've owned, you've had our money. You've owned up to it. You clearly haven't invested it in the infrastructure. So my question becomes, where's the money and can we have a bloody refund? Bearing in mind that that money is long gone and spent, yeah. and we are where we are. Yeah. What needs to happen? Because as, as you said, you're you're uh, you know you're now you're part of Labour's um, you know <laughs> part of Labour's <laughs> policy engine, which we'll come back to in a minute. But what needs um, to happen? Oh well, listen. Here's the simple thing: the legislation's there, all the powers there. It always has been. The shareholders of those water companies need to be brought to the table, kicking and screaming, and they need to start putting their hands in their pockets. Because when a water company says, oh, we're investing X amount of money, it's not true. By and large, it is simply not true. Any money that gets spent actually is coughed up by bill payers and by customers. Water companies, generically, their shareholders spell little investment in those companies. They've gamed the system. It has just become a legitimized ripoff. And it's time now we held them accountable and made sure we're going to now give you a choice. You now sit down and you will start making proper investment and your shareholders will start making proper consideration and contribution to that. And you'll feel a lot of pain for the next 10, 15, 20 years, but in time you will end up with a very profitable company with a nice shiny bit of infrastructure, debt-free, looking forward to a glamorous and prosperous future. 
Is our water system flexible with the industry organised as it is? I mean, you've just discovered a 20-year process, which if I'm running a privatised water company, that's not very attractive to me. I might just go strategically bankrupt. Can we well, fix water with leaving see, water privatised? You see, that, that, that was a nice try. And my okay. applause, by the way, because whoever briefed you on that, they were so close and so hot, you have no idea. Are you familiar with the concept of devil's advocate, Fergal? <laughs> yeah. Good. So here's the thing. Water companies have an operating licence granted by the government. Turns out, if you want to revoke that license, because it'd been just so utterly dreadful and hopeless, we've had enough, we're going to revoke your license. Turns out government have to give them 25 years notice. Yes. So well done. That was a good guess. Okay. Or I could just go, well, you know what? Uh, I believe the Supreme Court decided a couple of months back that government was completely legitimate when it basically nationalised Northern Rock and the shareholders of Northern Rock have never received a penny in compensation because it was clearly in the national interest. Or maybe I could also just go, you know what? Maybe I should chair the uh, change the auditing rules tomorrow so you have to declare the cost of fixing this as a liability on your balance sheet. At that point, you're now insolvent. You're now an ongoing concern. You fail the test and I'll just nationalise you tomorrow morning for free. Mm-hmm. So there's a number of ways you can kind of move into this conversation. But then don't we have to stump up the money? Well, that's why I'm personally against nationalisation. Because A, you've let them off the hook and then you put the taxpayer and bill payers completely on the hook to fix this. Personally, I think there is a way to keep the water companies and their investors and their shareholders in the game and make sure they feel as much pain. But here's the thing. For any new incoming government, I'll even put the sewage thing aside for a second. According to the chairman of the National Infrastructure Commission, it's now going to take 20 billion quid just to keep London's taps running for the next 30 years. So a new incoming administration, you're facing a situation where 25 million people are about to run out of water. It's going to cost you 20 billion quid. You're now going into the sewage industry, whether you like the idea or not. Labour's shadow environment secretary Steve Reid says the party will give off what the power to ban bonuses for water bosses who pump sewage into rivers. It will make water companies monitor every water outlet, find them for every illegal sewage dump, and use the money to pay for the enforcement regime, but they're not going to re- re-nationalise water. Obviously, as someone who's an advisor on this, you've got... Uh... Well, I'm not an advisor to anybody. Okay. Right, OK. <laughs> so we clarify your role there. Then. Um, Sarah is the uh, environment wing of the Labour Party. Okay. And uh, during the uh, conference up in uh, Liverpool, I was nominated as the new president for CIRA, the Labour Party Environment Wing. Okay. So that's simply a grouping of Labour Party members within the party that are now clearly trying to raise and use me and my profile and whatever contribution I can make to ensure that Labour Party overall is taking environmental issues and particularly water will be at the heart of that into thought and into consideration. So what I've just described there is not quite the fully kind of merciless regime that you've just described, but as somebody with, who is kind of at arm's length connected to Labour water policy now, oh, no, but what are you like, thinking? I, oh, no, we see, I go back to my basic point, and I agree with Steve, yeah. Steve Reid. The law and the framework has actually always been there. Mm. Whoever drafted the legislation in 1991 actually foresaw this very eventuality. So with a few bits of tweaking, the underlying issue for me is the complete unwillingness and unambition and actually kind of willful desire of the regulator not to go and use all of the tools and all of the legislation and all of the framework they've had at their disposal for 34 years. So can that be tweaked in some ways? 
The chief executive of United Utilities uh, stood down earlier this year and in 10 years they earned from recollection from memory 30 million quid in 10 years. Why do you think that the regulator didn't do that? Is it just regulatory capture? Is it? Uh, oh, listen, uh, well, it, for me, you have to, if you want to go into the more philosophical bit of it, you need to go back into the whole public appointments process and how those people end up being on those boards. Now, I say that as the child of a Labour government under Tony Blair in the late 1990s that you may remember some conversations about MPs asking questions with little brown envelopes in the back mm -hmm. pocket full of cash and the Nolan Committee and the whole public transparency. And part of that was how people got appointed to public bodies, that it needed to be open, transparent, competitive. The very first one that was advertised ever in 1998 was a seat on the board of the regulator for the commercial radio industry, the Radio Authority. I applied for the job and I got it. <laughs> well, you're a very talented man. I have absolutely no doubt right now in the modern world, all these years later, if a similar job came up with this government and with the current structure of Whitehall, I would not even make it onto a shortlist, never mind up doing that job. Mm. There's people sitting on the boards of these organisations that quite frankly are not up and do not have the capability, desire, ambition to actually go and run those organisations the way that they should do. They've known for decades that the water companies have gamed the system and have, to quote the FT, simply organised a legitimate ripoff of the consumer and they've knowingly sat back and allowed it to happen. And the law's on their side. They've got all the power they ever need. So we've talked about sewage. we talked about water supply in London. Yep. And, you know, presumably other cities in the country have similar issues with their aquifers. Um, well, London particularly because... Uh, uh, I'm going to go off down a slight rabbit hole, so I'll leave you guys to edit this out. That's all right. Uh, the UK is unique uh, as a nation in that on the planet there are about 225 of these remarkable, unique rivers called chalk streams that are a result of a complete geological freak accident about 50 to 80 million years ago when the UK was actually hovering somewhere down around the equator. Mm -hmm. And it's what you're actually thinking about is the skeletal remains of little tiny, tiny little things called coccoliths and think less than the size of a millimetre. And that is actually what you're looking at when you look at the White Cliffs of Dover. You're actually looking at the skeletal remains of a little organism that lived on this planet almost 100 million years ago. And that chalk ridge is what runs from Norfolk right through London and the southeast, all the way down into the Isle of Wight. It's named after the White Chalk, up into the Wiltshire Plain and the horse and everything else. It is a massive bit of landscape. And that chalk gives rise and creates and gives birth to some of the most pristine rivers on the planet. There's only 225 of them in total and 85% of them are here in southern England. There's a small dappling in northern France when the UK still was joined to France, but we don't talk about that. Yeah, the Brexit, much. you say. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen. The original Brexit. I, I'm happy to remind everybody there's a harp on the front of my passport, so you know what, you, <laughs> can, all, you can all do what you like. Um, the thing is, those rivers, what makes them unique is the quality and the composition and the clarity and the utterly pristine water that this chalk creates. It acts as a massive, beautiful, extraordinary water filter. Mm. and creates the most special water on the planet. That's also chalk streams downfalling. Because if you're living in a water company supplying 15, 20 million people in London, 
You've got this massive source of underground, pristine water that commercially you don't basically have to do much of anything to treat it before you can shove it down a pipe and sell it to your customers. And oh, by the way, water's big, heavy stuff to move around. It's expensive. Whoopee, you've got this massive underground reservoir of pristine, high-quality water right on the edge of the biggest conurbation in the country. And as I once referred to it, Chalkstream water for a water company is like a crack cocaine party for one on a Friday night. <laughs> That's one way of looking Highly at it. Highly addictive stuff. Yeah, but they love it. They love it. So the chalk aquifer, they've completely drained it dry. It's completely knackered. And as a result, those 200 streams, rivers in this country, which are, and I know I may sound like I'm exaggerating this, but I'm really not, um, is our Amazonian rainforest. Mm. We're absolutely destroying every single one of those rivers and on a daily basis committing a globally recognized horrific act of ecocide in our own backyard right here. So how dare this country get up and lecture the Brazilians or the Indonesians about rainforests and palm sugar or anything else. We're completely committing ecocide in our own backyard. Well, what I wanted to ask you about was we talked about surge, we talked about water supply for, for potable water. Well, the water story is intertwined with climate change, and we've just had horrendous floods, Storm Babbitt, seven people, you know, killed in the same areas that were, got wrecked by flooding in 2007. Yeah. Rivers not dredged, defence is not good enough. Thousands of homes in Yorkshire and East Midland flooded, villages evacuated in Scotland. It's a fairly safe bet that, that severe weather is going to worsen in the years to come into the next parliament and beyond. How do you see the water issue kind of developing from a kind of a safety level? Um, well, listen, I'll, I'll broaden it out slightly. Um, I actually think it becomes an interesting thing if you're the potential next Secretary of State for DEFRA. Because yeah. not only do you have water to deal with, 25 million people are about to run out of it. Every river's polluted with sewage. As we now know, climate change... Flood defence systems aren't up to it unless the rain blows in the right direction. I don't know if that would make a difference or not. Um, farming in certain quarters is becoming unsustainable. Dairy farms in the West Country. 50% of the UK's potato crop is grown in the driest part of the country in East Anglia. It takes 60 tonnes of water to grow one tonne of potatoes, and yet we grow 50% of the UK's potato crop in the driest region of the country, East Anglia. There's now more rain in South Sudan than there is in bloody East Anglia. So is it's that, a second That's not a figure of speech. That's, that's actually... No, completely a, accurate. A go and look it up. I challenge you to go and look it up. So it's a second state. Oh, no, by the way, the new scheme that was to replace the common agricultural policy, ELMS, is a complete train wreck. The farmers seem to hate it. There's some temporary scheme in. Nobody knows what's going on, whether it's still going to exist in two years' time, whether or not I'm going to get any kind of funding or support from government. And if I do, what does government want me to do as a farmer? And not 24 hours ago, I was listening to the president of the National Farmers Union complaining about cheap mass-produced eggs produced in clearly significantly worse standards of animal welfare and quality testing now being imported into the UK and undercutting the price of the average dairy farmer or egg farmer in the UK can produce an egg because we clearly have much higher welfare standards in this country. So the whole thing is quite clearly going from, oh, people are running out of water. And are we actually going to be able to buy eggs? And are farmers still going to produce vegetables? And will dairy cows still exist? And will we still be able to go and buy milk at a price we can all afford? So whoever becomes the next Secretary of State for DEFRA, I think they're going to have a bloody pretty exciting and challenging time for the next first five years in the next parliament.
From a personal point of view, Chris Packham, for instance, gets a fair bit of aggression and stick on his campaigns to protect wildlife. He's yeah. kind of become a lightning rod yeah. for a certain kind yeah, of reactionary. Yeah. Do you get any of that? Do you get people go, well, you know, I, I swam in a crappy river when I was um, a kid and I was fine. Uh, well, here's how my life worked out. You see, I'm not saying this and I'm not tempting fate because <laughs> clearly this could all change in five minutes. You've already beaten Viles disease, uh, so that's all right. <laughs> As I sometimes explain to people, I have had this kind of stunning 45 years as an adult where for all of my life I could go all over the world and random people would walk up to me in the street and want to talk to me about music. And that's a bit of a weird thing. You're kind of in Disneyland in Orlando with your kids and someone's going, love that record, mate. That was, and wanting to talk about concerts and T-shirts and just how utterly brilliant is that? Rachel, it's, you've just turned up in some alpine mountain somewhere in Nepal and somebody walks up to you in a bar and goes, love that article you wrote. It was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I think that would terrify me, but I don't, I don't have the rock star <laughs> mindset. But here's the twist to my life. People have now stopped talking to me about music. Now they want me to talk to me about shite and rivers. <laughs> yes. Well, do you know what? What did I ever do to deserve any of that? <laughs> so this is my point. I'm really happy to get this fixed as quickly as possible so I can stop talking to people about shite and rivers mm. and going back to talking about music. I'll be delighted and happy when that day comes. Fair the sooner the better. <laughs> Just to wrap this up then, I mean, what you've painted there is a quite terrifying picture of what's, what's in front of us. What kind of things can listeners do to make a difference to this? Oh, listen, right now, people already are. Yeah. Um, since this is a political podcast, uh, not a month ago, Sunday Times did some polling. 54% of voters are now clearly indicating the sewage scandal will now influence and change how they vote at the next election. 69% of voters now want to renationalize the water industry. And curiously for me, buried in all of that, 64% of conservative voters now want to renationalize the water industry. And it's a gross kind of generalization, but there is a grouping of people that instinctively would kind of reflex quite violently against the idea of nationalizing anything. But they're so bloody furious and happy because you've been had. You got lied to, you got played, you got abused, and it's going to cost you more money right. simply because of someone else's incompetence and somebody else's greed. So I totally understand how 64% of conservative voters are going. I'm absolutely furious. Just re-nationalize the buggers. So what can people can do? Get mobilized. Don't apologize. Get out there. Right. Get organized. If there is an election in the next 12 months, which is clearly going to be, I quite like the idea that anybody that stands up in any constituency with any ambition to be the candidate, it'll be made clear to them in no uncertain terms. You need to get up in public and explain to these people what you're going to do to sort this mess out. Otherwise, you will never, ever win this election and you'll never be the MP for insert name of yeah. your choice. I don't want to blow smoke up your ass, but you're a bit of a hero in our house. My wife says, tell him he is our spirit guide and we will keep fighting on <laughs> at the Stonebridge Lock Coalition because she works on the River Lee, right? So, really? Yes. She's, she's Fantastic. part of the sort of river restoration. I want to ask you, what would 1979 Duffel Coats, Teenage Kicks, Wednesday Week, um, Fergal, think of you now? We see, all I can say to begin with is uh, clearly your wife is a uh, re re remarkably young woman with remarkably good taste. <laughs> Um, in terms of what Fergal would say, um, listen, I cheat slightly. My father was chairman of the Labour Party in Derry. Uh, he was branch secretary of the local union. Both my parents were deeply involved in the civil rights movement in 1960 through the 1960s, 50s. Uh, I think it was the 29th of April, 1969, if I remember correctly. Uh, my mother insisted that 
dad packed all of the kids into the car. We drove to the other side of Ireland, where as a family, we collectively took part in the People's Democracy Civil Rights March between Belfast and Dublin. So there I am, 10 years old, walking down the middle of the motorway between Belfast and Dublin, taking part in the Civil Rights March, waving what I later learned was an anarchist flag, <laughs> thinking, well, this is quite, quite fun. punk rock. <laughs> More importantly, as a 10-year-old child, I sat around my kitchen table listening to the housewife, the mother, the school teacher, the unemployed, the electrician, the bricklayer, uh, the local poet, trying to figure out how they could bring down the government to national uh, Northern Ireland. And as a 10-year-old child, I watched up close and personal the housewife, the bricklayer, the school teacher, the unemployed, the poet, the joiner actually physically helped to bring down the government to Northern Ireland. So I learned a life lesson at 10 years old. Anything's impossible. Anything you want to do, you can achieve. You just have to have the desire and the ambition and the will to do it. So stop apologising and get out there and get organised. That's more inspiring and positive than we've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> well, like, yes, oh, yeah. Sorry, shall I go now? <laughs> yeah. Usually it's bleak. Yeah, I'm really bleak. sorry. That's good. I love the punters. I love that. reached the end of the show and it's time for Under the Radar. What are the stories that have gone under the radar, the ones that should be noticed that haven't been, this week? Rachel, what have you got? I'm going to talk about rental reform, uh, which is uh, really, really important, I think, given that uh, if you think the mortgage rates crisis is bad, look at what's going on with renters, particularly in London and cities in expensive areas. So the government, despite having promised for many, many years that they were going to introduce the renters reform bill, which would ban no fault evictions, uh, section 21 evictions, where it's not your fault, you haven't, you're not behind on your rent or anything, but your landlord just decides they want to kick you out, um, that they're going to drop it. And uh, it has been pointed out that there are a high number of Conservative MPs who are also landlords, uh, which could be something to do with it. It's also every time this debate comes up, people say, ah, but if you drive landlords out of the market, then you'll have fewer rental properties and rents will go up and it'll be even worse for renters, which is always quite confusing for me because there'll be the same number of houses. The houses aren't disappearing. But I think rental reform is a massive, massive issue that is as important as building more houses because the housing crisis, the housing shortage, housing insecurity is at the root of so many economic and social challenges in this country and we have to be able to get this right and we have to have an answer for people's stability and their well-being and their the lives of their children and, and their employment prospects and literally everything that isn't simply yeah, save up and buy a house. But it has to be something more on offer. That one's going to get bigger and bigger as the uh, as we go through the election well, and beyond. I hope it gets bigger and bigger. The issue is that um, Labour is talking a lot about building more homes and home ownership, which I also think is really, really important. And because I think it's, it's quite a British thing, we're obsessed with home ownership in this country. And I worry that the focus on that, which I think is really important, sometimes edges out the focus on renters who are... Obviously, if you look at sort of demographics, going to be 
younger, more financially insecure, more vulnerable. And we we need both. We need to build more houses and make it easier to get on the housing ladder. And we also need much, much better protection and security for renters. Look at European countries. Families will rent the same property for 5, 10, 15 years at a time. And it's absolutely fine. And they can have some stability and they can raise their children in the same place. And we just don't do that here. Matt? So I don't know if this counts as under the radar or not, but I do think it is a story that is interesting and important, the cap on the bankers' bonuses being scrapped. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it's interesting because I think it sort of represents two things about politics at the moment. On the one hand, it's a good example of a policy that did the opposite of what it was trying to do. They were trying to um, have bankers basically get lower bonuses, but what it did was it meant that it just increased their base level of pay, and then that actually made banks less stable because they had to pay people more even if they weren't doing as well. But also scrapping it also feels like the, the wrong thing to do. So I feel like the government are in this kind of weird double bind now where they did something right for the wrong reasons and now doing something wrong for the right reasons in a way. And it feels like if the Labour Party don't make more of this, then um, I don't know what they're doing because it's such an obvious thing to throw at the, particularly Rishi Sunak, who comes from the financial sector, to say you're focusing on scrapping bonuses for people who already have way more money than anyone else could possibly imagine. Um, so, yeah, it just feels very tinnated and, and very sort of relevant to what's happening uh, in politics at the moment. It's also a Liz Truss policy. It's the which one Rishi thing from Sinak, the Rishi, yeah, it's from the um, yeah. uh, quasi Kwarteng budget that survived. That the Rishi Sunak has adopted mm. a year on and, and, and she and her crowd are going around saying, see, he's stealing all our ideas. Oh, God, <laughs> a lot of thoughts. Fergal, what's under the radar? Um, I applaud Rachel for bringing up the uh, rental review and I can give you a personal example. As a father of a 22-year-old daughter, leaving college, trying to find somewhere to live in Cardiff, and a landlord demanding six months' worth of rent in advance. That's... Welcome to the modern rental market. Luckily for my daughter, she has a father called Fergal, so I was able to make all kinds of interesting things happen and take care of it. But what in God's name does another 22-year-old graduate do face with that kind of consideration? You're, uh, not, you're in a tent outside Tesco. I think I'm right in saying that at Prime Minister's <sighs> Questions today on the day we're recording, Rishi Sunak talked about that and said... Um, well, our focus is on making more people homeowners. And I think it's exactly the point you're making that, yeah, sure, that's a good idea, but there are going to be always going to be people who can't own homes for all sorts of reasons. So, And it almost feels to me like a, a bit like the comparison between people on PAYE and self-employed, that, that, that people focus on wage yeah. growth and stuff, but yeah. forget that self-employed people have a very different way of living. And just because there are slightly fewer of us um, doesn't mean that, that we don't matter as well. I also think just fundamentally when it comes to renting and to landlordism, there is this idea that if you have some extra money, you can buy a property and you can rent it out and that's fine. <laughs> but you shouldn't have to work very hard to, to earn that money. Mm. And again, other countries have a more of a professionalised rental sector, which is companies or, or organisations or cooperatives that own properties and, and rent them out and that invest in making them safe, decent places to live in a good state of repair. Whereas the, the, some of the rental stor horror stories I've heard, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure listeners will, will have their own, with landlords who seem to really resent having tenants who pay them rent every month and really resent having to maintain the property and who feel very put upon that their, their very ungrateful tenants want them to fix broken <laughs> windows and dodgy plumbing or, or what else. And it's just an interesting way of thinking about it, that you are entitled to that money without doing anything to, to actually earn it. So maybe we need a bit of a mindset change as well. 
Possibly so. In terms of a quick plug, and I'm going to plug somebody else and you can deal with it, uh, I can highly recommend Under the Radar, the new Private Eye Christmas card uh, features, I'll send you a picture, uh, Santa sitting on a chimney of a house doing a big poop down into the chimney <laughs> stack and the house is obviously the headquarters of the UK Water Authority. <laughs> <laughs> Available from Private Eye's website, highly recommend it, send it to all of your friends. Fantastic. We've reached the end of the show. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining us, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Thank you. And thank you for joining us, special guest, Fergal Sharkey. Thank you for the invitation. Pleasure. Now, there's, there's no point having your own podcast if you can't pull a stunt like this. So, hold on. <laughs> oh, God, here we, we go. go. Here we go. Right, I need your signature. See, now you want to talk to me about shite and rivers, do <laughs> I need your signature <laughs> oh, on this stop it. of Jimmy Jimmy by the undertones. Now, uh, those watching on YouTube will be able to see this pristine copy. Uh, and yes, that single. is me. This is this is that is actually me in his youth for a cup for singing in Irish. There you go. Well, <laughs> if you could possibly sign that for me, just to uh, Andrew, most definitely will. You will make an old man very happy, or indeed a happy man very old. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks very much. You're more than welcome. Very much. There we go. Normally, we really must ask... stop meeting like this. <laughs> Brilliant. Normally, people ask for refunds. <laughs> Too late, mate. I spent that money. I'll cherish it. My daughter's landlord's had it. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. You'll get the full version if you're a Patreon backer and you could join our legions of Patreon backers too and get early dibs on those tickets for that live show that's coming up. Search Oh God What Now Patreon and find out a little bit more about that. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Podmasters Group Editor, Andrew Harrison, with Matt Green and Rachel Cunliffe. The Managing Editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the Producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Socials by Jess Harpin. Art Direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Uh, as Fergal said, uh, you'd be looking forward to talking about music instead of talking about shite in rivers one day. <laughs> uh, it might be a while, I think. But yeah, music. Following the pandemic, we've had a boom in marathon stadium tours by established artists, the legends. Elton John resumed his farewell tour. Uh, the Madonna tour is the huge one of the minute. We've even got uh, digitally recreated ABBA. And to think today, actually, it was that Keith Richards has admitted that there will be a Stones hologram tour one day, whether we want it or not. <laughs> is pop music turning into a living museum? How do we stop it from turning into a sterile heritage industry? I'm going to come to you in a minute, Fergal, but Rachel, what, what's your pop diet? <laughs> I am the worst person for this conversation <laughs> yeah. because uh, I, I, I I came of age in the MSN messenger era, right. so my pop diet is basically whatever anyone sent me between the ages of about 13 and 21. It's incredibly eclectic. I've got folk there, I've got some 90s rock, I've got really obscure emo bands that nobody has heard of but that were really really key to my adolescence and I'm still like that I'm, I'm still as a kind of send me stuff and I'll listen to it and I've had uh, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to get to know get into the idea of Taylor Swift nice. uh, whose music I'm not I'm, I'm sort of aware she exists but everyone seems really obsessed with her so I said to a friend 
I've kind of missed this whole Swift thing. Is it worth listening to? And she's like, where have you been for the last decade and a half? Yes, it's worth listening to. <laughs> Here, start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, that's my that's my Christmas present to myself. So how about you? Are you much of a gig goer? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a massive music gig goer, to be honest. My brother is a musician, so I go and see him doing gigs. I saw him recently at the Green Note. Um, I love the Green Note. Which is lovely. I've never it's, been there before. It's great. It's, it's, it's a pub where they play music and it's just Yeah, nice. it's really good. Um, so I, yeah, I like that. But obviously, because I do comedy, I see a lot of comedy and I go to comedy shows a lot. Um, and for me, it's like, you know, places like the Edinburgh Fringe where I get to see loads of new things, um, which is exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of um, big gigs, I've, I've been to one or two at the O2 and things. And they're they're fun, but there's always a little part of me when they're in these such massive venues where I think, I sort of am just watching the screen a little bit. I'm, you know, that's that's the, the problem with those, that you, you, you're there, but you're slightly, you're so distanced from the what's going on. I find that I much prefer small venues and you know, getting you know up close and personal. I would come to the Green Note with you to watch your brother play. I think that would be really oh, fun. Well, you, you missed him last week, but he'll be back. <laughs> he'll be back. Now, Fergal, you, um, you know, when you left, uh, left the music business, after the, after the solo career as well, a good heart, hell of a tune, <laughs> on Madness's record label, you know, good, good stuff. But you made the decision that you are not going to, you know, that was it and you're done with it. Um, but been, since then, we have had the heritage music thing as, as you know, that no band remains split up anymore. Yeah. Have you ever been tempted to get back in? Uh, well, the answer to that is clearly no. Mm-hmm. Um, let me come at this from a slightly different perspective. Clearly, I'm cheating at this point, yes. having spent 45 years of my adult life in involved hands-on in the music industry. Uh, anybody in this conversation has not heard a piece of music in the last 24 hours, raise your hand. And that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like to hear the whole of it and you'd like to get a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and the day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning and amazing merchandise too. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.